Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Margaret is a highly sought-after expert, clinician, author, and educator in the field of functional nutrition. Today, we dove deep into her medical miracle, which was her mother who suffered from lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, which got her interested in the connection between food and health. We spoke at great length about how our modern-day lifestyles impact our gut health, the net impact of inflammatory foods strategies for elimination diets and why gluten and dairy in particular are particularly unhealthy for our digestive system and can actually increase the likelihood of developing leaky gut or small intestine hyperpermeability. We did discuss common dietary misconception, testing for gut health, five areas for gut healing, as well as the role of key strategies related to the elimination of seed oils, focusing in on grass-fed meat, and reducing our toxin exposure. I hope you will enjoy this podcast as much as I did in recording it. Well, Margaret, it is such a pleasure to connect with you this morning and talking about a subject that I get asked about all the time. And I really feel like it's in my listeners' best interest to understand more about gut health, gut microbiome, because we honestly take it all for granted until we until we start having a problem. And how many women in middle age start having quirky issues and they have no idea it has to, it's related to their gut not being nearly as healthy as it once was. So I would love for you to start our conversation explaining how you got so passionate and interested in this field slash, you know, this area in particular, because it's really your zone of genius. Thank you. Well, you know, this started for me really early and long before I actually chose it as a career. So on a very personal level, I watched my mom struggle with a very severe form of autoimmune disease. She had multiple health issues with two very severe, she had lupus and she had rheumatoid arthritis and very severe forms of them. And she was diagnosed quite young when I, when I was in my teens, she was in her, I guess that would make her kind of late forties. And it was an excruciating process to watch because I basically got a front row seat to what doesn't work. I mean, in some ways, and I'm not, I'm really not trying to diss the medical community because in some ways they kept her alive in the most amazing ways. Like she was a medical miracle. And yet all of the procedures, the medications, it was, I mean, her quality of life was so poor and it was just the situation of several steps forward, you know, like two steps forward, five steps back, one step forward, three steps back. And, you know, I just watched her over the course of about 20 years slowly and painfully degrade. And, you know, things like she got a hangnail once, like a hangnail, and she was hospitalized for three months because that hangnail turned into an infection that went all the way up her arm because the immunosuppressive drugs that she was taking were so effective that she couldn't even fight the infection from a little hangnail. And then, you know, she was resistant to all the different antibiotics and it was just, it became this thing. And can you think about the quality of life that to get a hangnail could hospitalize you for three months? So yes, she was alive. And yes, to a certain degree, the autoimmune was kept at bay, but to what, at what cost, right? And I just knew there had to be a better way. And parallel to this, I had had all sorts of like low-lying health issues. They weren't nearly as extreme as hers. So I didn't, I kind of wrote them off as just normal. And quite honestly, they are normal. And if you define normal as, you know, so many people have them, you know, I had lots of digestive issues. I thought it was completely normal to have to lie down after a meal because you had such bad gut pain. Like that to me was just like what you did. <laughs> I didn't know there could be another way. And I also had really, as a kid, I had horrible eczema started in my teens. So just, you know, that time where it's the last thing you want to be doing is have like, you know, itchy red patches all over you. And it went right into my twenties. And, you know, I was, I didn't know anything about this work. I didn't know anything about diet other than I like to eat. And I was, the way it was managed was basically just cortisone cream. Right. And I remember 
I got it on my eyelids. And I remember the doctor was like, oh, here, just, just, you know, here's a higher dose. And I was like, safe. Like, there's just a piece of me that was like, this doesn't seem to be working. Like, you know, and I, a friend of mine who I looked at at the time as, you know, just, she was way out there and she did all these like weird, you know, woo woo things. And she was like, well, have you ever thought about, you know, going to see someone who could look at your diet and some of these other pieces? And I was like, what does that have to do with things? And, but I was desperate. So I went and I, I remember, I think it was a natural, this is a long time ago. I was 25 at the time and I'd never even heard of a naturopath. I think it was a naturopath that I went to. And I remember joking, going in saying like, oh, she's going to take out all my favorite food groups, like cheese and coffee and chocolate and wine. And, you know, like had it only stopped there, <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was so much more comprehensive than that. But what was amazing is that, you know, she did a bunch of testing, manipulated my diet quite significantly in a very custom way to me loads of supplements. I'd never taken more than, you know, like I probably ate Flintstone vitamins when I was a kid, right? Like that was the extent of supplementation in my life. So taking all these things, but within three weeks, that eczema was gone and it literally has never come back. And not 25 anymore. So that was my first experience of like, oh, so I'm, I'm watching my mom go through this and I have this profound experience where my eczema Now, other things didn't clear because we didn't address some of the deeper digestive dysfunction at that point, but skin issues that to me, I should have nothing to do with what I ate. And, you know, there was just this moment of like, hmm, there's something to this. And it took me longer to get into the field and realize that this is what I wanted to do. But about 10 years later, I realized like, this is, I'm fascinated by this. There's more here. I had an opportunity to change careers. So that's when I just, you know, I was a business consultant at the time and I just dropped everything and went back to school to study nutrition and best decision I've ever made. Now, I, I will say my mom ended up passing away from complications of the medications that were keeping her alive. And it has just become my mission that, you know, not on my watch. Like there's, I have two daughters of my own. There's no way I'm going to let them watch me slowly die of autoimmune disease the way I watch my mom. Like that is not happening. And I now see every single day in my practice, people with quote unquote, irreversible autoimmune conditions, just like my mom, when we manipulate the diet, when we heal the gut, coming back to the gut, when we identify what's exhausting that immune system, remove those pieces and support it to heal and to come back into balance and to respond appropriately, then quote unquote miracles happen. And they're not miracles. We have lots of, uh, we really understand the mechanism for it, but it, it's just, there is such, a, you know, my instincts as a kid watching my mom were absolutely accurate there is a better way. And I don't know that, you know, this was a long time ago. I don't, I don't know that we had the tools and the understanding that we do now, but we have it now. So I'm committed to using it and spreading these tools as far as I can. What a profoundly powerful experience to watch your mom go through kind of conventional allopathic treatment for pretty significant autoimmune issues. I have a family member that had debilitating rheumatoid arthritis. She was my grandmother's generation. And she told me, I mean, they used gold. I mean, she had very disfigured hands and feet. Um, and she dealt with chronic pain her entire lifetime. And I, I just think that now we're in a position as a society to more eloquently spend more time thoughtfully examining why autoimmune conditions are on the rise, why we are dealing with so much chronic, largely preventable diseases. And so maybe that's really the place to start what is it about our modern day lifestyles that are making us so much more susceptible to autoimmune issues? Mm -hmm. And to be really clear and for full transparency, I, over the course of my lifetime, I've had three. Yeah. I've had psoriasis after being treated for Lyme with, with antibiotics. I developed alopecia areata in between pregnancies. And then lastly, diagnosed with Hashimoto's in my early 40s. And once you have one, you are more susceptible to others. But I think for the listeners, it would really be helpful to really understand what is it about our lifestyles that's making us so much more likely to develop these disorders? 
hundred percent. And I actually want to take a step back even further because I want us to make sure everybody really understands what is happening in the autoimmune disease process at the most, at the simplest level, just so we just are really on the same page. Cause that term autoimmune gets thrown around a lot. And just, you know, I mean, our immune systems are these powerful mechanisms that basically have two jobs, right? The immune system's job is housekeeping, internal housekeeping, and protecting us from foreign pathogenic invaders like parasites and viruses and things. And as a part of this, these mechanisms is an, the ability to differentiate, to differentiate between self and other, and then to differentiate between friend and foe. And that ability to differentiate is so fundamentally important and really complicated. If you're thinking about what's happening at a cellular level, there's many different aspects that go into this. Now, what happens in an autoimmune process is that that ability to differentiate has gone awry and the immune system is fundamentally mistaking enemy other (laughs) and friendly self tissue that it is supposed to be protecting. And so it's attacking self when it should be protecting self. Then of course, what makes up the name of the disease or, you know, what makes up the diagnosis is what tissue or what body system is the immune system attacking. So that's the fundamentals of the autoimmune process. And I think one of the challenges is we think, well, you know, how many people have psoriasis? Well, you know, the numbers are significant, but it's, you know, well, that doesn't rival something like cancer or what have you, or heart disease. But when you group all of the different types of autoimmune presentations. And there's hundred, there's over, well over hundred, I think it's like 150 at this point, keeps growing. <laughs> I mean, even things like the eczema that I mentioned, we didn't used to think of that as autoimmune. Now we understand there's an autoimmune component to that. So when you group these together, the autoimmune phenomenon affects, the numbers are staggering. I mean, it's, it's really of epidemic proportions at this point. And so the question is, well, why is the immune system making fundamentally bad decisions is the way I like to think of it, just to be really simple. And, you know, if you think about it, like any of us, if we're taxed constantly, you're working to the bone, you've got family obligations, social obligations, you're not getting the rest and the downtime and the recovery that you need. We all make bad decisions, right? Like that's just the way it goes when things are like being overtaxed. If that never stops, that's happening chronically, then we start to make bad decisions. And fundamentally, that is what's happening in the immune and an autoimmune process is that immune system is being constantly engaged such that it's never given a moment to sort of rest and recover and it's making bad decisions. And I know, okay, so I'm dramatically oversimplifying things. And yet I think this metaphor is really important when we think about your question, well, what is, you know, why, what is in our lifestyle, in our environments that is causing such a dramatic rise in autoimmune disease? And so the answer to that question, you know, the short answer is, everything. But the longer answer is, I mean, there's so many pieces to it. So what we're eating (laughs) is a really good starting point. So if we're eating foods that are triggering inflammation in the body, inflammation is an aspect of the immune system. That's an immune process, right? So that is exhaust, that's engaging the immune system. If we have any kind of digestive malfunction, digestive distress. And this is with or without symptoms as a lot of people think, Hey, I can, I remember I had a client once who had a lot of autoimmune. She had a very severe form of POTS. Was that a postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome? Yeah. Yeah. So she, and I remember in our first consultation, we talked about her digestive system and she's like, I could eat rocks. Like my digestion is so rock solid. And yeah, so even without symptoms, when we do some deeper digging and we look at testing, which I think we'll talk about a little bit later, there's can be a lot of dysfunctions that are silent in terms of symptoms. So any dysfunction in the digestive process is going to be a stressor in the immune system. And I focus on the gut very specifically because the vast majority of our immune system lives in and around the digestive tract. It's approximately 80%. I mean, you know, some people 75, I've heard up to 85 a lot, most of the vast majority of the immune system lives in and around that digestive tract. And so anything that is stressing the digestive process, anything that is going wrong in there is going to have an impact on the immune system. And so if we are eating every day, multiple times a day for most people, then even if you're eating a pristine diet of foods that are 
at face value, anti-inflammatory. And we can talk more about what, you know, different mechanisms for even good healing foods becoming inflammatory in the body, then, you know, you're going to stress the immune system. So just right there, digestion and food, that's huge. Other things, I mean, just stress levels overall will tax it, all of the you know pollutants that we're exposed to, the air we breathe, the water that we drink, you know, the off-gassing from the new carpet that we got, the, you know, from the, I mean, it's just the list can honestly become a little bit depressing and endless because there are so many environmental and toxic burdens on our systems that, you know, is, is really, you know, I feel like during COVID, the word unprecedented became sort of everyone said it, but it's truly unprecedented in the human physiology. You know, even as recently as 50 to 100 years ago, it was it was a, just a different world in terms of what our bodies are exposed to. And yes, we have powerful mechanisms that enable us to handle some of this and to detoxify. And yet those mechanisms are quickly becoming overwhelmed, allowing toxic burden to accumulate and adding additional stressors on the system overall, including the immune system. So there's just, there's so many pieces to the puzzle, um, but a really good starting point, if that becomes, if that starts to feel overwhelming, which it really does quickly, a really good starting point is the diet and the gut because of the fact that so much of the immune system lives in and around the gut. And honestly, healing that component I have in many cases seen really complicated, really severe autoimmune processes completely turn around simply by addressing the diet and healing the gut. And it doesn't always happen. Sometimes we have to go deeper, but as a first step and as a really profound step that will move the needle significantly, gut healing is where it's at. And I love what you said. I mean, food really is medicine. And unfortunately, you know, during my training, my initial training, in allopathic medicine, we literally probably had one hour lecture about nutrition and it was probably aligned with the food guide pyramid. This was preceding my plate. So it tells you how long ago this was, but there really wasn't an emphasis on food as medicine. There certainly was an emphasis on how our modern day standard American diets, which are highly processed, hyper palatable and highly inflammatory can lead to a lot of these chronic and preventative diseases And so I really would love to talk a little bit more about inflammation because it gets a bad rap. You know, we're very reductionistic. We we always think inflammation is bad. Well, no, if you cut yourself or if you stub your toe, acute inflammation is a good thing. It's, it sends specific messengers and chemicals to that area to help heal it. It's when that goes on unabated and there's other components of inflammation on a chronic level, like things like cytokines that can really drive chronic inflammation. And, you know, the other piece of that is I feel like so many, and I, I I always really speak to the bulk of our listeners are 35 to 55 or older, and that toxic burden that you were alluding to earlier, maybe you can weather that as a teenager in your early twenties, maybe early thirties, but that toxic burden just gets filled up and filled up. And it's when it starts to spill over that maybe that's the time that you'll develop symptoms. And so Speaking a little bit to inflammation, I think would be helpful to clarify a little bit because I feel like in many ways, inflammation gets a bad rap, but it's not all bad. It's when it goes on chronically and unabated that it becomes an issue. A hundred percent. I I agree with you entirely. I think that it, our tendency when it comes to health, we love to be really linear and say, oh, this is good. This is bad. I mean, think about, you know, the cholesterol, oh, good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. That drives me crazy. There is no such thing. It's just when things are out of balance, you need all of it. And inflammation, as you say, it's a really important part of the healing process. The issue is when the inflammation does not resolve. In other words, it doesn't end. And there are are various mechanisms for this. But one of the concepts I think that's important to know is that our, we, we think of the concept of, I think most people are familiar with neuroplasticity, right? Like that's how we learn, right? You know, as we, you know, you do something new the first time there's new neural connections that are made. And the more that that is repeated, then those things become automatic. It's why we can drive a car and have a conversation at the same time, as opposed to the first time you drove that car, like every single fiber of your being was paying attention to what you were doing. Now, our immune system is also plastic. It also has that ability to learn and to adapt and to get extra efficient at the things that it is required to do the most. And one of the things it is asked to do a lot is to inflame. And one of the things that it is not as well supported to do is to anti-inflame, is to resolve that inflammatory process. So what happens is it's like, 
you know, because there's so many inputs that are pro-inflammatory and they're not, and we're not balancing that out with the inputs that are anti-inflammatory and that support the resolution of that inflammation process, we get this imbalance and the, the immune system gets really good at like, oh, I need to inflame, boom turn that response on, but then it gets caught in these pro-inflammatory loops that don't resolve and that don't, they just don't end. And so it's like things are triggering inflammation all over the place. Again, appropriate in certain situations, but what's really important is that it actually resolves. And there's, you know, this is actually one of the things that, you know, we take, think about fish oil as an anti-inflammatory and part of what fish oil is doing is it's kind of like shouting up to the, uh, you know, the head honchos of the immune system going like, Hey, we got it. Like, you don't have to keep sending the pro-inflammatory signal. Like we got it. You can resolve this process. We can end this process now. So there's different nutrients that's, you know, some of which will help to minimize the triggering of the inflammatory process, others that will help to resolve it. But the key point being that we need to be doing things to support the, the resolution of that inflammatory cycle, not just saying inflammation is bad and we should never have it because, you know, we want to be able to bring in those, you know, sort of agents of inflammation to heal, but then you want them to actually go to, you want that process to end. So I think that's a, a really important thing. And one of the challenges with our diet is that so many of the foods that we're eating are very pro-inflammatory. I mean, even something like conventional beef versus, you know, pasture raised beef, the fatty acid profile in those two foods, which are they're, they're very different, right? The, you know, conventional beef raised, you know, or finished, especially on grains, you know, the seed oils, then are, that becomes part of the muscle tissue of the cow that we then eat. And that's going to have those pro-inflammatory fatty acids, whereas one that is fed exclusively on pasture and on grass, the fatty acid balance is going to be a lot more balanced. You know, it, it, so omega-3s generally are, are the anti-inflammatory, the omega-6s and 9s are the more pro-inflammatory. And when we have this balance, you know, it used to be, you know, one to two, one to three in terms of threes to sixes. And now it's like one to 20, one to 40. I mean, we just... You know, it, it, again, it's not about not having any omega-6s at all. It's about the quality of them and it's about the balance with others. So that's why we focus so much more in the health space about bringing in foods and supplements and all these different ways to support the anti-inflammatory and inflammation resolution process. I would say these are such important points. I had Rob Wolf on the podcast last year talking about his book, Sacred Cow, and talking about the differentiators between regenerative agriculture and kind of conventional agriculture. Dr. Kate Shanahan has been a guest talking about the dangers of seed oils. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I find fascinating slash disturbing is that conventional feedlot meat, the way that they fatten up cattle and other livestock prior to going to, I'm going to say the word processing because it's a nicer word, before they go to be processed they are fattened up. What are they fattened up with? Grains and seed oils. Exactly the things that we know flip these inflammatory switches in the body. And so when you talk about the role of inflammation, chronic inflammation, and how food is probably one of the most important things that we can do to reduce the degree of inflammation in the body, we really have to think thoughtfully. Like I tell everyone to read food labels. We know soybean oil is the number one consumed fat in the United States which is profoundly disturbing. It's in everything. You know, it's so seemingly innocuous. I was staying with my mom last month when she had surgery and I was throwing out some salad dressing that my stepfather loves. And I told my mom, the first ingredient is soybean oil. You have to find another option. <laughs> this is awful. But the reason why I wanted to reiterate that is it's such an important concept. So when we're talking about pro-inflammatory foods, what mm -hmm for you are the big ones. It's probably, obviously it's two we've already identified, but what are some of the other big ones that you find are incredibly problematic for your patient population? Well, ab so absolutely refined foods, any kind of processed foods. And it's because of the combination of the seed oils, the industrial seed oils, which are in almost everything. I mean, I will tell clients, you want to do one thing, get industrial seed oils out of your diet. And they can, I actually had one client say like, oh, she got this record. This one thing. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> 
just spend an hour or two in that grocery store and you're going to understand the profound nature of what I have just requested you to do because that is not a small task. They're in everything. And then sugars that are in those foods is all, you know, it's amazing. I, for a long time, I've had this real food reboot program, which is what it sounds like is rebooting your system using specifically real food. But one of the key things is that we're eliminating sugar from the diet for 21 days. And it's always amazing what, where you find sugar in things that just, it's just, there's absolutely no need for them to be there. So if we can get rid of, I mean, I say processed foods, but let's, let's focus on, so the industrial seed oils, sugar, highly inflammatory. And honestly, is there anything that sugar, I mean, other than it tasting good, I can't have, I don't, I can't come up with an argument for consuming it. You know, I mean, you know, in some cases, you know, I'm a distance runner. So sometimes, you know, I have, you know, looking at different ways to fuel myself. If I'm going to be out there running a marathon, like, yes, I'm going to consume something that is more carbohydrate focused. I'm also going to burn that immediately. <laughs> so, you know, it's in very, very rare situations. Is it beneficial? But basically sugar is going to worsen anything. It's going to inhibit pretty much everything in your system. You know, like you think about, I look at, we talk about the immune system. I look at, you know, kids who are sick, you know, guzzling orange juice, which is just liquid sugar. And it's, it's actually, you know, the consumption, I think is one teaspoon of sugar shuts down the act activity of macrophages. So those are parts of the immune system that are like eating up, you know, bacteria and infections, really important part of our immune system shuts down macrophage activity for a couple of hours. So that orange juice is the last thing you want to give your kid when they're sick. So sugar, the refined oils, now gluten is just such a thing. You know, there's endless reasons why we want to pull gluten out of the diet. It is highly inflammatory. It's also even in a totally healthy individual, it is creating digestive issues, including leaky gut, which is the gateway to all sorts of other issues, including elevated levels of chronic inflammation in the system. And we can talk through that in a moment, but gluten, I mean, we could spend hours just talking about that one, you know, that one wheat protein, <laughs> not a big fan of grains, generally speaking, but I think if we're talking about the heaviest hitters, you know, gluten is, is the, really the, the biggie that we want to be paying attention to. And then for many people, both soy and dairy, there are some forms of dairy in particular that, you know, if you're talking about like past, you know, from a pasture raised cow, ghee or butter or heavy cream that doesn't have as many of, you know, the aspects of that food that are pro-inflammatory for a lot of people. It's the proteins that are problematic. A lot of people have sensitivities to dairy. Some people can tolerate it, but even things, you know, the breed of cow, for example, is really going to impact, you know, like we do have heavy cream in the house, but we get it from A2 cows, which are more heritage breed and the dairy that comes from them is totally different. So this is, you know, it's a, again, you have to get a little bit more into nuance here, but generally speaking, the vast majority of dairy, the vast majority, absolutely the soy oil. I mean, that is just, you know, if you're going to do soy, I would say at very, very minimum amounts, maybe a little bit of tamari, which is naturally fermented gluten-free soy sauce, you know, when you are out for sushi or something like that, like that's sort of the extent of the soy that I would recommend consuming. And this is coming from a former vegetarian. So I was a vegetarian for a good, like 15 years and I loved my tofu. I also realized that was a big player in the reason why I needed to lie down after many meals that I was eating because my it just wrecked my gut. But um, but those those are the the heavy hitters in terms of foods, and then it gets a lot more nuanced and a lot more personal. And this is where you know testing and understanding what is triggering the inflammatory process in your body. That's sort of the next layer of things, and when you can get really really fine tuned. I think it's really important and it's certainly helpful to hear this from someone other than me. So let's talk a little bit about gluten mm -hmm. and the dairy specific to A1. In my house, I've been dairy-free for four years and that's been very, very helpful for me. My family is not dairy-free. They're not gluten-free, although I am. And so we have these resultant battles sometimes about you know, I'm a realist. I have teenagers, you know, we do have some, you know, faux chips, you know, who brand makes a non-junkified mm -hmm. option for crackers, Siete chips as an example. So let me be very clear. We do have some processed foods. We try to find the cleanest option because said teenagers, there will be anarchy at this stage. You know, they're 17 and almost 15. But when we're talking specifically about gluten, 
And I know I've had Jeffrey Smith come on and talk about our glyphosate exposure and pesticides and things like non-gluten hypersensitivity that I know Tom O'Brien speaks a lot about. I think it's just helpful. Like not everyone who, you know, there are people who should avoid gluten entirely who have celiac, but there are also many people who don't realize that it is not normal to get bloating and to, you know, find that their rings don't fit properly and have digestive distress after they consume gluten. And so what is it about gluten here in the United States that is causing so much digestive distress that for many of us, again, like you said, I used to eat, you know, my soy products and I would lay down because I was having all this discomfort has allowed us to kind of perpetuate consumption of a food that is actually very inflammatory in our bodies and is creating, you know, down toward issues that we're experiencing. So I want to take a step back to explain an aspect of the digestive system and then how gluten impacts it. Cause this is, this is one of the key pieces to why gluten is problematic. I would argue for everyone, even if you don't get bloated or what have you, I think that gluten is one of those things that I just, again, I know it tastes good, but I just can't come up with an argument for it. Like there's nothing in it that you can't there's no nutrients in it that are not better sourced and more bioavailable in a food that is much less harmful. So our digestive process, it's actually, I mean, I think it is kind of miraculous and, and incredible. It is literally where the outside world becomes us. I mean, it's a very profound moment if you think about it. Our digestive tract is still the outside of our bodies in many ways. I mean, we really are basically very complicated donuts and the donut hole is our mouth, to, you know, it's this big, long, fancy tube from our mouth to our anus. And, you know, all sorts of different things are happening. And I'm not going to walk you through the entire digestive process, but there's this moment in the small intestines where the lining of that of the small intestines, the lining of the gut is that final frontier. It's that barrier between the external world and us. It is that moment where what we have eaten literally becomes us. And it, and basically the lining of the small intestine is one cell thick. So, I mean, not a lot there, one cell thick. And it's the cells line up together. We call them the tight junctions. They line up kind of like little soldiers side to side. Okay. And what happens is that there's various mechanisms that tell those tight junctions to open and say like, Oh, I'm going to open, let this nutrient in. Oh, I'm going to open and let this nutrient in. And it happens very selectively or should happen very selectively. And there's, there's multiple mechanisms that regulate that process because when those junctions open, that is something going directly into the bloodstream. Okay. That is, so that is a barrier between the outside world, even though it's inside our bodies, that's still the outside world and what literally becomes us because we are basically walking food, right? Like every single cell in your body was once food. So of course, so this is, this is sort of the argument of why quality matters. People pay more attention to the quality of gas that they put in their cars than the food they put in their bodies. And yet we literally, you know, the car doesn't become the gas. It just fuels it. Food is much more than fuel for our bodies. It, it literally is what we are made of. And so this is the moment where that those nutrients get enter into the bloodstream and then circulate it through the body to do what they need to do. When we consume gluten, it causes the upregulation of a substance called zonulin. And zonulin is one of those gatekeepers that regulates those tight junctions. So when you eat gluten, basically what happens is this, all those junctions, it's like highway, like everything just sort of opens up and allows, if you have this dramatic upregulation of zonulin, what allow, that happens is all those junctions that should be tightly sealed and closely regulated open and just allow all sorts of things into the bloodstream, which can be food that is not read yet at a proper stage of digestion. So it's, it's not yet in a sort of nutrient form. It's maldigested. It's getting into the bloodstream. This is the birth of food sensitivities because your immune system sees that and doesn't recognize it. It might be the most perfectly, you know, organically grown by your neighbor piece of broccoli. But if it gets into the bloodstream in an improper form, your immune system doesn't recognize that and that has to deal with it. But it can also be things that are bound for the toilet bowl, toxins, pathogens, like all manner of 
debris can get directly into the bloodstream, which then is going to trigger that immune system. So it's a little bit, if you think about, you know, if let's say you lived in this big, beautiful house, like right in downtown Manhattan, right? And so you've got this big thoroughfare going past your house. And normally you want to have all your windows and your doors tightly shut. And maybe you have that like nice doorman at the front door who like only lets in the people that you want to let in. Eating gluten is akin to basically opening up every door and every window in that house along the busy street in Manhattan and letting anything in, anybody in. And those doorkeepers are busy trying to like deal, but they can't, you know, they get overwhelmed really quickly and all sorts of things that should not be getting directly into the bloodstream, get into the bloodstream. So right there, that, and that process happens with everybody. I mean, that's just part of the way the body processes gluten. And it's exacerbated because we have hybridized gluten or gluten containing grains to have dramatically increased quantities and types of gluten. It is, you know, because if you ate a piece of bread, even as recently as a hundred years ago, 150 years ago, you wouldn't get this like chewy gooiness that we now associate with wheat. That is a very recent phenomenon. And that wheat has been hybridized because the gluten is the gluey part. It's what creates that spongy deliciousness that we all love. And yet it's the very gluten that's triggering this process that's dramatically increasing that process of gut permeability or leaky gut is the way we refer to it, which is now causing a host of other issues and allowing things into the bloodstream that shouldn't be there, triggering the immune system, triggering inflammatory processes. And so it's really, I think of it like the, I mean, we think of it as the gateway food sensitivity, right? Like it is the thing because it opens up all the gates and it lets all sorts of things in. In fact, when we do food sensitivity testing and somebody is eating gluten, you'll often find sensitivities to things that they eat at the same time, right? coffee as an example, or, you know, like the things that they're eating in conjunction with that gluten. So I don't, we, we keep an entirely gluten-free. In fact, I did a training with Dr. Tom O'Brien years ago, and I sat through, I don't know if it was a day or two days of literally just going through hundreds of research papers on all the different ways that gluten is challenging our systems. And I remember in that training, just texting my husband saying, okay, it's over. Like gluten is out of the house. Like it's just done. And we have, we've maintained a gluten-free household. What, I guess six years now at this point, it's maybe seven, close to seven years. The only time the kids, you know, if we went to Italy, I let them have a little, but it's also a rare exception. And it's, it is different. You know, don't, don't have the same levels of hybridization. You don't also have, well, in Italy to a certain degree, you do still have the glyphosate, but you're definitely, it's not the same here as it is there. I mean, how many, I'm sure you see this all the time as well. And Cynthia, in your practice, we have, I have clients who, you know, they feel great when they are in Europe or maybe they lived in Europe, then they came to the States and their health just tanked. I mean, it's really, it's quite depressing. The, the level of that glyphosate exposure and just the quality of our food is just so much lower than so many other places in the world. Yeah. It's really a shame. And, you know, much to your point that now that my kids are at a certain age, I want to be clear when they were younger, it was so yes. much easier <laughs> to, to be able to restrict access to certain things. And I also have a child that has life-threatening peanut and tree nut allergies. So a lot of the gluten-free alternatives that are lower in carbohydrates are not even an option for him, but we did have for a period of time, he was, my oldest was actually also gluten-free, but it got to a point where you get so much friction. I have to pick my battles. But what I find interesting is when we do elimination diets, you know, in group programs or when I'm working one-on-one, -on -one, the number one most contentious thing to remove from someone's diet is dairy. I don't know why. I don't know if it's the opiate interactions in the brain, but I would at least love to touch a little bit on dairy. You know, we talked about the A1, A2, you know, looking at cow's milk dairy, which appears to be more inflammatory than like goat or sheep's milk cheese and yogurts and things like that. But what is it about dairy in your estimation that you think is so addictive, so alluring? It probably doesn't help that dairy is subsidized by the federal government. So we have dairy in everything. Again, it goes back to the food label piece. Well, and I'm a good person to speak to it too, because if there's a food that I really struggle to pull out of my diet, it's dairy. It is like the, th I mean, gluten was actually, it was fine. I even, you know, I stopped drinking for two and a half years and that was, you know, that was easier and, you know, getting rid of cheese. I was like, oh God, this is really, really hard. I think there's a number of things. So I do think that for definitely for some people, because it has that opiate factor and it really is driving the pleasure response. It is a true 
addiction. And I feel like this is tricky because unlike something like alcohol, where you don't need to drink, but we do need to eat. And so, and because it's so ubiquitous, it becomes challenging to try to make modifications and, and try to eat around it. Also, unlike gluten, while there are a lot of products that try to mimic cow product, you know, dairy, it is, they don't do a very good job, <laughs> right? Like, you know, it's kind of where we were with gluten-free products maybe 10 years ago, you know, because right now, if you want a piece of bread that's gluten-free, like you're really, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't eat this every day for sure. But if you're just like craving a sandwich or something, you can get a really good sandwich and you're going to basically not know the difference, right? Pasta, you're going to, you know, we've figured it out. Maybe there's a few things, you know, I don't know that they figured out things like croissants and stuff. I have, I've not had a good gluten-free croissant, but really like most things, whereas 10 years ago, it was like eating gluten-free. If you wanted a food that would normally contain gluten, you know, it was like you couldn't eat, like you wouldn't have a piece of gluten-free bread without toasting it, for example, because it was basically a brick. I feel like we're still at that stage when it comes to substitutions. And I, I'm not a believer in leaning on the substitutions too heavily, but they are really important transition foods really important. They are the thing that breaks the habit because if you just pull something out, you need, like you need something to replace. There's a lot of things, you know, my husband's a chef. And so we spend a lot of time talking about what food is for people. And it's not just energy. It's not just nourishment. It's comfort. It is distraction. It's, you know, it's about, you know, when we come up with a substitution for something, and that's one of his specialties, it has to do all of the things. Like a good piece of gluten-free bread needs to have the crunch as well as the softness. Like it has to have the textural pieces. It has to have the taste components. It has to have that. It has to create the same experience. And so, I mean, there's different mechanisms for why dairy is hyper-addictive, but they're very similar to the mechanisms for gluten. But I feel like that, and I see this in my practice, I'm much more successful at getting people off of gluten and grains entirely than dairy. Dairy becomes the hardest thing for people. And I really believe it's because those transition foods that need, that are so vitally important when you're letting go of something, it's really hard to reproduce them for whatever reason. And then you find, you know, challenges like with your son where you have, you know, a lot of nut allergies and reactions. And that's where many of the sort of dairy-free alternatives are nut based, if not all. I'm not a chef, so I'm never going to say never because I'm, you know, someone's going to say, oh, well, you can do it in this way. So that I'm not aware of. But I think that that's a really important piece of it. And, you know, I think it's also because so much, so, you know, there's quality issue. So as we talked about, you know, A2 to A1, there's also the processing issue, right? So even something like pasteurization really makes um, dairy in some ways safer and in other ways, a lot harder to digest because it's, you know, it's killing off all the good stuff at the same time as it's killing off the bad things. But, and it's, it's hard and challenging to find good quality raw dairy that you trust. I mean, it, it's totally doable, but it, it's a project. And then you find that it's one of the top food reactions, both in terms of allergic reactions, as well as in terms of food sensitivities. So a food sensitivity being, it's, it's not a formal allergy. So it's not, you know, basically an allergy is a food reaction that's mediated by immunoglobulin E. So it's an IgE type of response, but you have food sensitivities, which are, it's not mediated by IgE. There's other ways, either IgM, IgG, or not antibody mediated at all. And it, it's actually just happening at a cellular level. As well as it's also one of the top food intolerances, meaning that we don't have the digestive capacity to break it down properly. So many adults don't have, you know, the enzyme lactase that breaks down the milk protein or milk sugar, excuse me, lactose, thus leading to, you know, digestive issues. So, you know, there's just so many different ways that we can react to it and that it can trigger the inflammatory processes and then we don't have a good transition food and it's so highly addictive. I believe that there's really, you know, mother's milk, right? I mean, this is what we were born with. There's something I think very, very primal and instinctive about craving the comfort that dairy provides. And I think that that's one of the key reasons why it's so hard to let go of making that transition food all the more important because we crave that comfort. And it's a very specific sort of creamy, sort of soothing texture that is 
hard to reproduce elsewhere. You know, there's only so many avocados you can eat. I feel like that's, that for me was always the thing. If I wanted just a straight real food creaminess, you know, I would reach for, you know, and have half of an avocado after dinner as dessert, you know, but you know, that's sort of from a straight up real food perspective, that's one of the only things that I can, I've, I've ever found has even come close to sort of scratching the same itch, if that makes sense. No, it totally does. And I'm so grateful that I was able to kind of get you to touch on so many aspects around dairy that I knew would be helpful for listeners. And for full disclosure, I thought going dairy-free was one of the hardest things I've ever done, much harder than going gluten-free. The irony is giving up cheese was fairly easy. There's something about ice cream and yogurt that was harder for me to accept and give up. And so I don't eat ice cream. And I had found an alternative, a coconut milk yogurt that I could have in the house. And ironically enough, even though it's based out of the UK, they discontinued their yogurt. It was called Coconut Collaborative. And it was the perfect amount of creaminess without being like overbearing. It almost felt like whipped cream. It was that aerated. Uh, But unfortunately, they no longer make it. And I remember writing them a letter. I was like, I've never written a company a letter to complain or to, to, you know, try to find out, are you sure you're really giving this up? Because it was such a great option. But there are are coconut milk-based options. I found anything almond milk-based has been like tasting paste. I always jokingly say almond milk, cheese, and first of all, almonds don't make milk, but let's just say almond, quote unquote, milk, cheese and dairy and yogurt tastes like paste. And for anyone that's listening, if you found a brand you love, I'm not criticizing you, but I literally think I've tried everything. Cashew milk. I mean, I've tried all of them. And I don't know if that's been your experience as well. Like they're, they're unpal. It's like paste. If I had ever eaten paste as a child, that's what I would imagine it would have tasted like. Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. There's a couple of coconut ones that I find tolerable, like the cocoa yo, I can, I, I like some of theirs, but generally speaking, and I need to have had a lot of distance from, <laughs> from real, you know, like you need to sort of have lost that memory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. And I, it's funny because for me, it's, I wouldn't care less if I never had ice cream or actually yogurt another day in my life, but it's the cheese that I find that I really crave. And the thing too, with sort of faux cheeses and all of these products, you know, they're filled with awful foods. I mean, because they become so much more processed than the actual, you know, just straight, dairy. So, you know, our approach, and we've done, I've also done oodles of testing around this. So, you know, determining, cause it is different. It is very bio-individual for some people. It is very pro-inflammatory, no matter how clean, raw and A2 the cow, you know, you know, like it doesn't, it really doesn't matter. Like you really need to stay away from it. But for some other people, it is something that you can do with those things, but that's where testing becomes really important and helpful to understand if it's triggering that immune process or not. Because if it is, you really want to stay away from it. Even if you don't have autoimmune now, or that you're aware of, I think that's something that's really important to kind of circle back to the autoimmune piece. You might be thinking, oh, well, I don't have any digestive issues. I don't have any autoimmune in my family or in myself. So I can go eat gluten and I can go and eat dairy. But if we're talking about prevention, then what you want to be doing is minimizing the things that are exhausting that immune system, because it's that constant drain on the immune system that leads to these things. So, and it, you know, I I could say it's about age, but it isn't about age. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, yes, the older you get, the more that you have been exposed to, and the more that your body's capacity to handle these things has just been, you know, you've done a lot with your body and it it takes more for it to recover, but it's not just an age thing, you know, And, and there's so many of these variables that are really hard to control. You know, some of the environmental pollutants and just lifestyle pieces, you know, like if you're somebody who, for example, travels a lot and you spend a lot of time in airplanes, well, that is incredibly taxing to your system. But does this mean that you never fly again? Or does it mean that you control the things that you can control to support your body so that it's not the thing that's the tipping point? And so, you know, the diet is something that we have a lot of control over, that there are options. And I feel like that is such a really important lever point because there's so many things that are out of our control. Yeah. And that reframing, I think is really important, you know, being kind to ourselves. So we've alluded to testing and I know you and I are both a fan of tests, don't guess. So let's talk about some stool testing. Let's talk about the Dutch in particular, because I know these are both tests that we use in our practices, but two that I find particularly helpful and beneficial when you're working with women that are dealing with 
presume food sensitivities, digestive issues, or even if they're not even aware of their digestive issues or hormonal imbalances, which of the two tests do you like to start with? Um, they do go together. I always say they play well together. It's like peanut butter and jelly, which is a terrible analogy, but they really <laughs> do go well together. And so I, I always like to do not just one, but both of them. But do you have one that you think is a better starting point for your clients? Well, definitely the GI map, the, the, the stool testing. And the reason for that, so there's a real interplay in, with digestion and everything in the body, but in particular with hormones. And so if we have to prioritize, and I'm going to start with what we need to do to heal the gut. And so I, you know, there's different ways of doing stool testing. The, you know, we used to do culture-based stool testing, which was, you know, they, it wasn't very accurate in that basically what happened is, you know, you would mix the stool with a little bit of reagent and that was feeding anything that was sort of living in the poop basically, but not all organisms eat the same stuff. And so some wouldn't make it to the lab alive. Others would be thriving because they loved that particular food source. So it was, you know, the results that you would get would be pretty skewed. What I love about the GI map is it's extremely sensitive. So it's looking for basically genetic evidence of other organisms in, in your digestive tract. Now it gets critiqued because it's so sensitive, but here's the thing, you know, most people, you know, if you, there's a lot of things, you know, with conventional medical model, the type of testing that is used often misses a lot of things. And if you have somebody who is still symptomatic and we go in and we look at the GI map, we see that there's lots of things that are not a pathology, right? It's not enough for it to be a disease state, which is good. We don't want a disease state, but that doesn't mean it's not causing a lot of issues and discomfort and it's not challenging that immune system. So I'm a really, really big believer in starting with healing the gut because it's just such a profound impact on all sorts of things. Now, the hormone connection, I know <laughs> you talk about the estrobilome a lot. So I'm assuming people know what that is, but just so that again, we're all on the same page, you know, it's kind of like a, you know, your microbiome is all all the, the different, you know, the bacteria, the fungi, there's all these organisms in, in your gut. And some of them are really beneficial and really helpful. And others are just sort of neutral. And then there's some that are actually quite harmful. And if you think of this kind of like your gut garden, right? Like you have the flowers and the vegetables and things we want there. And then you have the weeds that are like not that harmful, but a little bit annoying. We need to keep them in check because left unchecked, they will take them over. And then you have the things that are actually, you know, harmful and devastating and can do a lot of damage and take out, you know, the flowers, kind of like the pests, right? They can take out the flowers and the, the vegetables, the things you want to grow. And so what that that's the microbiome overall. And then there's a subset of these that are, they have a really specific influence on our hormones, estrogen in particular. They produce an enzyme called beta-glucuronidase, which can essentially decouple estrogen that has been packaged up by the liver ready for excretion and make that beta-glucuronidase. So there's a process in the liver called glucuronidation, which is essentially taking estrogen and packaging it up in a form that is, because um, here you have this fat-soluble hormone that needs to leave the body in a water-soluble environment. So it's packaging it up such that it can do that. Well, what can happen is that beta-glucuronidase can then uncouple that bond. It can actually detach it or deconjugate it, which would allow the estrogen to then get reabsorbed into the bloodstream and recirculate. This is not a good or a bad thing. I want to emphasize back to the point of there's no such thing as good or bad. Like this is part of the body's ability to manage and keep our hormones in balance. But if you have significant imbalance in the microbiome where you have really upregulated levels of that beta-glucuronidase, what can happen is that you can actually dramatically increase the amount of estrogen that is getting back into the bloodstream and cause significant hormone imbalances because that estrogen really was supposed to be going to the toilet bowl, not back in your body and recirculating. So that collection, that sort of subset of bacteria in the gut that produce this, the beta-glucuronidase enzyme is a really, really important aspect of maintaining hormonal balance. So this is where these things go together. Now, hormones at the same time also affect our 
digestive processes. In fact, just the other day, I was reading some really compelling research that I'd not come across before, which was about the role of estrogen as the protective role of estrogen in upper GI issues like GERD and esophageal cancers, showing that, you know, particularly so men and postmenopausal females who are not on hormone replacement therapy have a much higher incidence of these upper GI issues and um, looking at the protective role of estrogen. So these things go to both ways, right? And I, I feel like we're just at the beginning of understanding the interplay of hormones and how they're affecting our digestion and our digestion and how they're affecting our, our hormones. But the place that I start is the gut because it has such an, it has such an impact on all the things, hormones as one of those aspects, immune system. It is one of the best ways to downregulate systemic inflammation, because if you're healing and sealing the gut, that means that things aren't getting into the bloodstream, like we talked about earlier, that shouldn't be getting there. And that's one of the, one of the main sources of systemic inflammation is just is things getting into the bloodstream that the immune system now has to deal with. No, that's so beautifully stated. And I think on a lot of levels, there's this kind of methodology of, well, I just had, you know, ova and parasite testing and stool testing in my doctor's office. Why would I need this additional test? And I, I always explain that a lot of these functional and integrative medicine tests give you a whole different perspective. They can tell you about the health of your gut microbiome, how balanced things are. Do you have a lot of dysbiosis, which is this non-beneficial bacteria you know, do you have candida? Do you have reactivation of Epstein-Barr? Do you have parasites yeah. and worms? No one wants those, but the parasites are super common. And then, yeah. you know, looking at, do you break down your fat? You know, that's, if you find fat in your stool, you know, that can be problematic. And then, you know, the nuances that you were mentioning, you know, anti-gliadin antibody, looking at zonulin, et cetera. And so when we're looking at creating healing protocols, you know, what are some of the higher level things? Obviously, moving, removing inflammatory foods is number one and trying to dial in on stress. And, and I think for everyone listening, we've had more stress in the last two and a half years than we did probably in the last 10. So I'm seeing lots of interesting critters on the GI map and yeah. lots of interesting things on the Dutch. But what are some of your kind of common things that you lean into. And when I say this is a generalization, obviously bio-individuality rules, but what are some of your go-to things that you'll lean into, whether dietary lifestyle, supplement recommendations, et cetera? Well, if we're talking about gut healing specifically, there's five areas that I'm focusing on very specifically. And as you mentioned, the inflammatory foods, I do want to add in. So my favorite second test that I always run in conjunction with the GI map is the MRT food sensitivity test. And why I like that particular test is we've been talking about the foods that are inflammatory for everybody and taking those out is enormously important and it will, it will absolutely move the needle. There's a second layer, which is what foods are currently triggering inflammation in just your body, right? It's going to be different for every individual. And it can be really helpful to identify and remove those foods while you're going in particular through a gut healing process. So I don't ever do this on its own, but this is part of the digestive healing. So we work with the GI map that gives us all that great information that you just talked about right there. And it also, then we do the MRT food sensitivity test, which tells us what foods are in this moment triggering that inflammatory process. So we remove those along with the sort of heavy hitters and usual suspects just temporarily while we're doing that gut healing work. So I would lump that all into the category of identifying and removing the inflammatory foods. The next sort of big bucket that I'm looking at is digestive function. And this is an issue that so many people have challenges in without even realizing it. They're not, their digestive capacity has been minimized. So key things that we're thinking about when we're talking about digestive function, we're thinking about our stomach's ability to secrete hydrochloric acid, which is essential for breaking down proteins. It's essential for absorbing all of your minerals. It's essential for absorbing B vitamins. It is what protects you from orally ingested 
pathogens like parasites, you know, all these things, we're all exposed to this stuff. You don't have to travel. I mean, traveling somewhere exotic can definitely increase the susceptibility, but you can get it from your dog. You can get it just from eating at a restaurant. I mean, we are exposed to pathogens all the time. And that hydrochloric acid, one of its jobs is to basically kill that stuff off and neutralize it so that it doesn't actually take residence in your system. The acidity of the contents of your stomach is also what triggers all sorts of subsequent really important processes down the further down the line digestively, right? Like as the contents of the stomach move into the top of the small intestine, the duodenum, I mean, even the rate at which it moves there is, is dictated by the acidity of the contents of your stomach. Um, but then when it gets there, that's what stimulates the gallbladder to secrete bile, which is essential for gut motility. It's essential for breaking down digesting fats. It's part of your detoxification process. The acidity of the of it's called the chyme when it gets into your duodenum. It's, it's what's responsible for triggering the pancreas to secrete enzymes, further digestive enzymes to continue the breakdown of the food. So if you have insufficient hydrochloric acid, which many people have. I mean, let's think about the things that suppress the body's ability to produce hydrochloric acid. Well, stress, <laughs> overconsumption of starchy foods, alcohol consumption, an H. pylori infection, a history of eating a lower protein diet, definitely a vegetarian or vegan diet. I mean, almost every, and getting older. <laughs> so there's several of those factors that are literally unavoidable for every single person. And then the others are so common that we call it hypochlorhydria or low HCL is really something that almost everybody deals with. And just supporting that, if, you know, if, if you put a gun to my head and said, Margaret, you can work with one supplement for the rest of your life with every single client, one supplement and one supplement only, I would choose hydrochloric acid because it is so key to so many processes down the line. So it's really, really important. But other things when we're talking about digestive function is the ability to secrete enzymes. It's, you know, that gallbladder function, you know, is it secreting enough bile? Is that bile nice and thin and free flowing or is it thick and sludgy and not able to do what it needs to do? What is your gut motility? So these are all pieces of digestive function. So that's the next bucket. The third piece is looking at that microbiome and seeing this is where testing is absolutely invaluable is looking at that microbiome and seeing the balance. You know, do we have sufficient beneficial bacteria? Do we have, you know, what are those opportunistic or think of them like the weeds in your gut garden? You know, are those opportunistic bacteria being kept in check or are they being, are they allowed to sort of grow and proliferate and cause problems just like weeds do in your garden? And they are opportunistic. So they will take advantage of any opportunity that are there that's there looking at you know is there an overgrowth of some different kinds of fungi like you know the candida or rhodotorula or some of these different fungal overgrowth presences so looking at that balance and making sure that it's all in check and then as a another piece to this i consider this sort of the fourth category is looking for any kind of pathogens any overt infections you know is there an overgrowth of h pylori you know, is there a parasite infection? Is there something actually pathogenic that we need to go in and actually eradicate? Like some of these imbalances, it's not about eradication so much. It's about creating an environment that allows and encourages the beneficial species to really grow and thrive and that discourages the opportunists from growing. But when we have actual infections, we need to go in with eradication agents. You know, we're using, you know, different kinds of herbal, antimicrobials, antifungals, et cetera, to actually kill off anything that shouldn't be there. So that's the fourth piece. And then the last piece is really thinking about healing and sealing that gut lining. It's, you know, I talked about earlier, you know, you want those tight junctions to be nice and tight, to be well-regulated and to only be opening up and allowing in what they should be allowing in nutrients on an individual basis, not all manner of maldigested food and toxins and pathogens and just, and literal debris, like literal junk that was destined for the toilet bowl. So those are the five areas that I'm thinking about all the time when it comes to digestive healing. And these two tests, the GI map, is giving us great information to inform four pieces of that puzzle, the, you know, all of the pieces other than the, the food sensitivities piece and the inflammatory foods. And then the MRT is giving us vital information about what foods are triggering inflammation so that we can pull those out while we do the gut healing. So invaluable. And as we kind of wind down the conversation today, 
I would love for you to touch on what you think are three common dietary misconceptions. I have strong opinions about this that I talk about quite a bit, but what are three things that you see pretty consistently or with some degree of regularity that your clients are doing that are misconceptions based on, gosh, I mean, look at a lot of bad research that's been done, a lot of things that are propagated by you know, otherwise well-meaning healthcare professionals, but what are some of the things that you think are more common in terms of dietary misconceptions? It's changed, interestingly, and I would have had a different answer for you, you know, 10 years ago, but then I do now. So I think I would just say one of the common dietary misconceptions I think is finally changing is our relationship to fats. I feel like finally people are not just terrified. They're still the like, oh, saturated fat is bad. But I think more and more people are recognizing that's not the case. The big ones, I think at this point, um, one would be this, there's still that like healthy whole grains that just refuses to die you know, feeling like we need so much, uh, we need grains as our source of fiber, as, you know, sort of bulking up the diet. Um, it will certainly bulk you up. I'm not sure about, <laughs> but you know, that just feeling like the healthy way to eat is sort of leaning more towards to grains and plant foods specifically, which goes along with, I'd say the second one, which is this notion that we, that we, we get, too much protein in our diets. I think that there's more and more compelling research that we actually need a lot more protein in our diets, especially as females and especially as we are getting older. I think, um, I know you're, you're good friends with uh, Dr. Gabrielle Lyons. I think she's got some really compelling research and, and arguments for this, but I just think across the board um, are, and this is something that I've definitely changed my tune on in terms of, you know, the, the protein requirements for for women in particular, I think that it is it is the sort of underappreciated macronutrient. And I think that, you know, I'm always encouraging people in, to not only consume more of it, but to consume it first when they sit down to their meal, because it is amazing what it does for satiety, for just sort of regulating our appetite overall for so many important functions, you know, the muscle recovery for balancing our energy levels, reducing cravings. I mean, it really is a very, very underappreciated nutrient. And I do, you know, I, I am a believer after having been a vegetarian for, you know, close to 15 years and being so unhealthy, the more animal protein I eat, the better I feel the faster I recover, the better I sleep. I mean, all of the things start to regulate the more I really focus on that animal protein. So I think that that's one place there's still this really strong movement to more plant-based diets and that we sort of, the Holy grail is in the vegetables. I don't believe the Holy grail is in the vegetables. I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go as far as saying, you know, a hardcore carnivore diet. I do, I do, I see a role <laughs> for vegetables in the diet, but I think that we underappreciate the importance and the value of protein. Oh, I cannot agree protein. more. Yeah, I could not agree more. Well, it has been such a pleasure. I could talk to you for hours, but obviously want to be respectful of your time. Please let listeners know how to connect with you, how to connect with you, your program, Restorative Wellness, which I have done three out of four classes. They're excellent. Highly recommend them. Let us know how to connect with you outside of the podcast. Absolutely. So for my private practice, it's eatnakedkitchen.com. And we have about 450 different articles and recipes and just really great resources for you there. I have a team of three other clinicians and um, we collaborate on client cases. So that's a great place on Instagram. I'm at Margaret Floyd Barry. And then for practitioners out there, or if you're looking for a practitioner, restorativewellnesssolutions.com. We train, we train health professionals and the tools that we've been talking about today, how to work with these labs in a way that's really going to help your clients heal and profoundly heal and turn around that, you know, disease processes, those the inflammatory processes helping to resolve inflammation. So we help, we basically equip clinicians with the tools to be able to do this work. So if you're a health professional and this is sounding appealing to you, definitely check us out. And if you're somebody who's looking for a practitioner who does this type of work, um, we have a find a practitioner page and resource on our site, and um, you can find some fantastic clinicians there. Awesome. Well, it's been a pleasure, my friend. I look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks. Yes. Likewise. Thank you so much. That's so much fun. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. 